Let's pray together before we look at this passage together. Lord, we ask that you might open our ears and hearts and minds by your spirit this morning. Please, by your powerful spirit, speak through me what is true, faithful to your word, helpful to your people, listening here in the building and those watching online. Pray, Lord, that you would teach us as David sought to teach those who heard him and read his psalm. Pray, Lord, that you might teach us about yourself and how you want us to respond to you, the rescuer. So, Lord, we pray you do a great work in us for your glory and praise. Amen. If I ask you what God has rescued you from, what comes to mind? Maybe he's rescued you from what could have been a horrible accident on your bike. Maybe a fatal accident in your car. Maybe you've been rescued from that illness, from dying of COVID, of cancer. Maybe God has rescued you from the exhaustion of sleep deprivation and carried you through a difficult parenting season with young kids. Or maybe you are forever grateful that God has rescued you from your sin and the judgment you deserve. Whatever God has rescued you from, it's good to reflect on that and it ought to result in praise. I hope that we will be thankful when by God's grace we recover from COVID or a sore back or tiredness or a migraine or whatever. But when our good God rescues us from a potential death or from eternal death, it moves us to praise. At least it does for David here. Our first point this morning is praise the Lord for he rescues David begins Psalm 34 with multiple words describing his emotions, his responses to God. Oh, bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And remember, a feature of Hebrew poetry is its parallelism. That is, words and phrases get paired up with one another. And they can be describing the same thing or adding a new emphasis. So in verse 1, if you look at that, bless and praise the Lord are paired together. And in verse 2, boasting and gladness. In verse 3, proclaiming, exulting. And if we draw all of these together, David is saying he gladly and continually wants to praise God with his words. Here he is piling up the words to express his deep and overflowing thankfulness. Why? Because God's greatness was seen in him answering David's prayer, verse 3, rescuing him from all his fears. God answered his prayer and rescued him. Now, often we don't know the specific circumstances that led to the writing of a psalm, but, but here we do, we're told in the title. And please remember, the psalm titles are part of God's inspired word. In the Hebrew, it's verse 1. So when you're reading a psalm, read the titles. And this title strongly suggests that it, David wrote it after the events that we just read in, in 1 Samuel 21. There in 1 Samuel, for several chapters, King Saul had been trying to kill David driven by his jealousy of David's military 
successes. David had already been delivered from Saul multiple times. And now, helped by his best friend Jonathan, David has fled for his life from Saul. And it seems that David is thinking he has no other option or that he's thinking the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Whatever it was, David flees to this Philistine king, Achish. In the title, Abimelech, that means my father is king. And we assume it's talking about Achish, but my father is king. Maybe that was a a title that was used for Philistine kings, a bit like Pharaoh was used by Egyptians. And so the Israelite women, they've been singing about the Philistines. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And then that's the context. And after this, David now rocks up to this Philistine king hoping that without his armor and his army, that he won't be recognized. But he was. And we're told there that David became very afraid. So he pretended to be insane, acting like a madman. I'm not going to illustrate that for you this morning. I don't intend on having uh, saliva run down my beard. But his attempt, his plan worked, didn't it? The king, thinking that David was someone else, sends him away. But then in, in chapter 2, verse 1, 22, verse 1, we're told he flees and hides in a cave. God's rescued him, but his trial has actually not ended. So the danger hasn't passed. His life is still threatened. And yet he has been saved from this near-death experience. And after his salvation from this near-death experience, he writes... Psalm 34. The point is, David's prayer for rescue was answered by God. His life was preserved. And in his words, the Lord rescued me from all my fears. And in verse 5, David is convinced that his experience is true for other believers too. Others who look to and rely on the Lord And that's those who, in verse 7, fear the Lord. Remember, to fear the Lord describes those who have a genuine, awe-filled trust in God. And God's people, when they're poor, when they're needy, when they're in trouble, as David was then, they will find that God turns their glory into shame. God will save them, rescue them. He says so that their joy is even seen on their face. David was then physically immediately rescued from the clutches of the Philistine king Achish. But if you keep reading 1 Samuel, you'll see that David, as I said, still hiding in a cave, still on the run from murderous Saul, still fleeing from, for his life, always in danger. And time after time after time, the Lord did preserve David's life, protect him, rescue him. What about us? As you considered at the start, maybe you can remember when God has rescued you from illness or cancer, from danger or death, and given you more time on this earth. And 
And as a result of that, you have or you can still praise God for his rescue. Or maybe when I ask this question, what about us? Maybe you're thinking, God didn't rescue my loved one from harm. My loved one died. Or God doesn't and he didn't then answer my prayers. I certainly can't explain why God wills what he does. And yet it's important to remember that there are different types of rescue, different forms of deliverance. I think most of us will know people who've seen their loved ones suffer terribly from illness or cancer or its treatment, die after a long period of suffering. And if that person knew the Lord Jesus by faith, then their death is deliverance. For God rescues his people from this life of suffering and sin by ending their lives in this world and bringing them home to himself in heaven. So to go and be with the Lord is better by far. I share a true story that I heard at the recent men's convention. Perpetua and Felicity were two young North African women. In 203 AD, they were imprisoned for being Christian and for refusing to offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor. 22-year-old Perpetua had an infant son. One day her father brought him in and he pleaded with his daughter to denounce her faith. Perpetua's separation from her baby caused her great pain. But Perpetua said, I am a Christian and I cannot. The penalty for professing the name of Christ was death. Her believing brother had been praying for her release. One night Perpetua had a vision of a golden ladder that that led up to heaven and a great dragon at the bottom of the ladder. But the ladder was covered with sharp iron weapons that would cut you. In her vision, the two women climbed that painful ladder to heaven. So when she woke up, they decided that their imprisonment would lead to martyrdom and not to their release. Perpetua and Felicity were thrown into the games arena to be gored by wild animals. And Perpetua's diary is one of the earliest diaries in existence and one of the earliest writings of a Christian woman. And it has an editor's note at the end of the diary which says, The day of their victory dawned. And they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully as though they were going to heaven with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance, shining face and calm step as the beloved of God, as the wife of Christ, putting down everyone's there by her own intense gaze. Perpetua and Felicity were thrown into the arena of wild animals where they were injured but were not killed. Tragically, the Emperor Severus 
and commanded that they be put to death by the sword. Were they rescued? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Taken home to glory out of this life of suffering, sin, pain. A Christian going to glory to be with the Lord is a wonderful and mighty rescue. Believe it. Do you look forward to that, Christian? As Christians, we can die well with hope and joy and expectation and the praise of God on our lips. We can and we should praise the Lord for he rescues. If not from our temporary trials, by answering our prayers, then through death to bring us to glory. So how will your praise of the God who rescues be seen and be expressed in you? I mean, could you praise God more in your prayers? Or are you always so busy asking for things? Could you, with heartfelt singing, praise God with your earbuds in or in your car or at church with God's redeemed people? As verse 1 said, as we exalt his name together. Or maybe you know your praise of God is not like verse 1. It's all too half-hearted. We're infrequent. Reserved. How do you want to respond? But as well as well as praising God for he rescues, Psalm 34 also wants us to know that God is good. We're invited to know that God is good. Next point. Look at verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That, that describes experiencing God's goodness, his generous kindness, a blessing there. It means describing, it's describing the experience of his blessing. Honestly, I don't like the translation of the Christian Standard Bible when it translates the Hebrew word blessing for happy always. But when we read happy here, it's talking about God's blessing. Being blessed is better. And God's goodness, it can be described or expressed rather, it can be expressed in many ways. You see, God's people do find him to be a refuge, as we're told, a safe place. And we'll look at what it means for God to be a refuge next week when Chris Craig, one of our elders, preaches on Psalm 46. But also, because God is good, it means his people lack nothing, we're told. They do not want, as we heard last week in Psalm 23, God provides his people with what they need. Verse 10 says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I mean, that requires a bit of interpretation, doesn't it? For we might think, Lord, I've got cheap sausages or rice again for dinner tonight and I want steak. I lack that good thing. Or I want healing. I want a bigger house. I want marriage, a boyfriend, a friend. I lack that good thing. The challenge is then, and I know it's not easy, to trust that God is good and he does good. 
He promises to work good in your life, Christian. Remember Romans 8.28? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. It's important to memorize verse 29 as well, though. Because it goes on to say that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So what our good God gives us may not always feel good. It won't always seem good to us with our sinful hearts and our limited knowledge. But God says, trust me that it is good. It is good for making you like Christ. So when I rescue you from danger or suffering, it is good. And and when I let you experience it longer and you have to wait, it is good. And that may mean that we experience many bad days, suffering and pain. But God is accomplishing his spiritual good in us. What is good eternally? A woman called Brianna, Brianna McLean, wrote in a Gospel Coalition article in 2018 that our understanding of suffering gets sticky when we try to hold together God's goodness and his sovereignty. We hear that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, but what is good when we're left bruised? If we understand that God is good and cannot do anything that is not good, then even in the depths of suffering, he is still good. God weeps over the state of this world and he walks with us in our suffering, but he is still in control. The goodness of God does not undermine our pain. Two months ago in an instant, everything crumbled. My future, my home, my greatest earthly desire all taken by the God who gives and takes away. My theology of suffering was put to the test. I encountered the God who wounds, and he has taught me that my definition of good is wrong. In the Bible, Brianna continues, in the Bible, good isn't a longed-for marriage. It isn't a comfortable home, a great job, or even a faithful church family. Good is God's name being glorified, his kingdom advancing. Good is people being made holy and learning to trust him more. God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself and he will not be thwarted. Forgot to put that up. So when pain seems pointless, the God who wounds shows me that it is good. The God who wounds has done this for his glory, to grow my reliance on him, to make me more like Jesus, to have his name proclaimed, that is good. Dr. John Dunlop cares for people with dementia. He's written a great book, Finding Grace in the Face of Dementia. And he writes, he says, that growth in our relationships and character, both with others and with God, often occurs in the valley of dementia. He tells this true story. Five years after Dave was stricken, 
Denise got talking about how her life changed through the course of Dave's decline. She said that had she known how difficult life would be, she never in a thousand years would have wanted to face dementia. And yet as she looked back, she, there were many things that she was grateful for. She mentioned that she'd learned to love Dave in a more unselfish way, more like God loves her. She'd come to better understand the extent of God's love for her. She'd learned to depend more on God for daily strength and emotional support. Her prayers had grown into cries for God's help rather than just telling him what she wanted. Denise went on to say that God was making her more patient and kind and her hope of heaven was so meaningful. Dunlop explains that caregiving is a calling but many Christians are not able to trust God so fully. They may never have learned that part of God's plan for their lives is to mould their character, to make them more like the Lord Jesus by leading them through difficult experiences. Psalm 34 is a poem that's actually structured around the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And verse 11 is at the centre. And so it's important. David is wanting to use his experience and this psalm to teach others. To teach people, as he says, a fear of the Lord, that, that deep awe-filled trust and obedience. David is still likely hiding in a cave without stability, without security, and yet he wants people to trust that God will give his people good things. However, verse 14 says, we can't expect a long life with good things if we don't do what is good. Now verse 14 is not saying that we're saved by our good deeds or that we earn our blessing, but rather God's saved people will live for their Lord. That's to be our desire. These verses are actually quoted in 1 Peter chapter 3, where, where Peter is calling Christians to love one another, not take revenge, but bless their enemies, bless others. And Peter says, if you want to inherit a blessing, the blessing of heaven, if you want to inherit a life of never-ending good days, then live God's way, as he describes. So we're not saved by our good works, but the person saved by God will do good works. Should. You see, those who are righteous act rightly. Faith always shows itself in love and doing good. So I ask, how are you going at how are you going at doing good? In your words and your deeds, are you showing that you follow the Lord? Say no to evil, yes to what is good. Good for others before yourself. In Psalm 34 verse 15, it's saying you can't expect God to be good to you, to hear and answer your prayers when you shut your ears to what he says and go and do the opposite. 
Notice the language in verse 15 of God's ears, eyes, face being open to the righteous. It's saying that God notices that he cares for his people and he delivers them. God is their rescuer. Those who trust in the Lord and do good aren't promised perfect health, wealth and happiness in this life through some prosperity gospel. They are promised that God will meet their needs. And God will work what is good for you ultimately, spiritually. Promises to shower his goodness upon you eternally. And so our final point is that we need to pray and trust that he rescues. The psalm repeats again in verse 17 The Lord hears the the cries of the righteous. He rescues them from all their troubles. And yet, look, it's followed by verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Maybe you know what it's like to be brokenhearted, crushed. So David is not saying in Psalm 34, the believer has no pain and no worries. For we can be troubled, we can be at rock bottom with a broken heart feeling crushed. In verse 19, the word adversities is a word that's describing afflictions, bad things. Bad things happen to us. But God hears, he's close to you and he will rescue you. He will rescue either in his time by ending the trial or the pain or by giving you grace and strength to endure it as he grows you more like Christ, or ultimately by rescuing you from this life of suffering and sin by bringing you to himself, bringing you to himself to experience a life with no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That is, if you've trusted In Jesus, the rescuer. And we can be sure that he rescues, for he has rescued us from our sin. Psalm 34 says of the one who is righteous, verse 20, he protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's helpful for us to know, to remember that this is true of Jesus, firstly and foremostly. In John's gospel, in chapter 19, it tells us of how Jesus was crucified. He suffered the wrath of God as he hung on the cross bearing the penalty for our sin until he ultimately said at the end, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now the Jews wanted those who'd been crucified that day killed faster so they could avoid having to do work of carrying and burying dead bodies on the Sabbath which would start after sunset. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who'd been crucified with Jesus. Crucified with Jesus. And when they came to Jesus, we're told in John 19, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out, evidence that he was dead. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe 
His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they'll look on the one they have pierced. Jesus was crucified and pierced. And yet not one of his bones was broken at his crucifixion to fulfill Psalm 34 verse 20. Only Jesus was innocent. When we read this psalm, think about how it points to Jesus. Only he is the truly good one who did good, who alone did good every day, all the time. Only he was innocent and yet he died in our place for your sin and for my sin. That the God who wounds became wounded so that we never have to experience the pain of suffering for our sin. It's amazing. In Christ, God took our wounds upon himself. Christ became sin for us so that we could become righteous, right with God. Psalm 34 verse 22 says that God's servants are redeemed. And he did it. He redeemed us. God set us free from the punishment that we deserve for our sin through Jesus. All who take refuge in him and trust in him will not be punished. That's what we've been rescued from, best of all. All who take refuge in the servant Jesus, the Redeemer, will not be punished in hell. And isn't that wonderful? God, through Christ, has rescued us from our sin and its punishment and an eternal death. And now we can say, we can sing, we can shout. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Super good news. And if by faith you know that God has rescued you from your sin, from eternal death, from a punishment in hell that you deserve, then you can trust him in your troubles now. You can trust your good God to rescue you from your other trials too. Trust that he will provide you with what is good in the meantime, in your illness, in your loneliness, in your conflict, your fears, or your caregiving, working good now with a rescue that's to come. And it's just a matter of time. So trust him. I hope that we can all praise God for the rescue from sin and rescue from spiritual death that Jesus has won for you. Praise God that he is near to the brokenhearted. Praise God that he's good. And in your trials, he will accomplish good in your godliness. Praise God for every good gift you have, for all the prayers that he has and does answer. And praise God that never-ending good days awaits you in the life to come. So what will you do to praise him? And I ask, is radiant joy seen on your face? 
brothers and sisters, taste and see that the Lord is good. He really is, really is. So keep trusting him. You will see it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for you are good. I know that sometimes we don't feel it when life is hard and the trial continues. Please help us to trust that you'll do what you promise. Work all things for our good. You'll give us what is for our good. Give us what we need in this life. In life to come and in the future, unless the Lord Jesus comes first, you will bring us home to be with you, to experience what is incomparably and never-endingly good, to grow our trust in you. Lord, we pray you'd give us joy and praise response to who you are and what you've done.